Welcome to Thrive HR, a podcast by Thrive Pass. In this show, we sit down with industry leaders to explore the world of HR and everything it has to offer. I'm your host, Andreas Deptola. The more I gave into the culture, the more I gave back to me. I put a lot of myself into it. And I sort of the belief that you don't join a culture, you contribute to a culture. In this episode, Andreas takes us through an exciting journey of growth and mentorship with one of Thrive Pass's board members, Will Sneeden. Tune in and listen to how relationships can help one stretch their legs in ways that a direct growth path might never have. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Andreas. Thanks for having me. Super excited to have you. And maybe as a little disclaimer here, Will and I, we are working together on the board capacity of Thrive Pass. So it has been really a privilege, Will, to work with you together. And thank you for all your input and then obviously for, for the time today. It's my pleasure, Andreas. So I always like to ask this question at the beginning, Will, you, Will, you were at Aeon for a long time, right? Is there anything interesting about you that even your co-workers at Aeon didn't know about you? This might be a hobby, a, a random language that you know, anything that you can share with the audience here. <laughs> yeah, I, as you can imagine, I've been asked that question at various points throughout my career, and there's always some go-to answers that you've always had. But my wife actually suggested that I go to a relatively recent development, which my son is a student at the University of Louisville. And when we started going there four years ago, I we went on a, a distillery tour and discovered that we liked the bourbon distillery story. And I have become a little bit of an aficionado around the story of bourbon, and I actually really enjoy hosting tasting, not necessarily drinking bourbon, but hosting tastings and bringing out five bottles of bourbon or rye and talking about the mash bill and the toast of the barrel and the length of time that it's been distilled in the barrel and how it's been handled. And I find that really fascinating. And I can get pretty excited about hosting a bourbon tasting. And I've actually had a few people ask me if they could pay me to, to host a <laughs> bourbon tasting for their clients. So different kind of answer to that question. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to ask, what what does anybody have to do to get an invitation to a special tasting here? You know what? So just tell me that you you have a passion for bourbon, and maybe tell me a little bit about your favorite one. And <laughs> okay, put that on my on my list. There you go. In, in all seriousness, I want to start our conversation today with your career at Aeon, and I think what's Maybe today, a little bit unique about it is that the majority of your career was one firm, right? And we see these days a lot of young professionals switching jobs more frequently. So maybe tell us about the beginning, your journey specifically. Sure. I actually was an actuarial science major in the mathematics department at University of North Carolina. Coming out of college, I was a pension actuary. I joined Hewitt Associates in Atlanta, Georgia. And um, while I decided the pension world was a little more overly regulated, I really enjoyed the culture of Hewitt and learning about business. And so what really attracted me to be at one place for such a long period of time was the culture and my, the realization that the more I gave into the culture, the more I gave back to me. I put a lot of myself into it. And I sort of the belief that you don't join a culture, you contribute to a culture. And so when I found something that, I, that was really felt really good to me, I just wanted to continue to contribute to build the culture that was there. And Hewitt, of course, was eventually acquired by Aon. Oddly enough, I actually went from Hewitt to Aon, and then Aon bought Hewitt. So I technically did switch employers. But uh, I stayed with Aon and Hewitt for 33 years. And it, it, it's funny, I actually don't think of it as I stayed in the same place, because I 
moved around to so many different physical locations and so through, through so many different roles and responsibilities. I definitely have a little bit of a restless personality when it comes to that. I probably moved as much inside of Hewitt and Aon as others have in their career moves outside of and in between different organizations. It's interesting so, that you mentioned the culture, right, as one of the main drivers. Mm-hmm. How would you define the culture at the beginning, right, when you started your career? And then how has it evolved and how have you maybe as one of the leaders of the organization shaped the change? Yeah, when I joined Hewitt, it was a partnership. And a private partnership operates very differently. You can have a very different culture than a public organization. And for organizations that are going through their growth stage and have aspirations to go public, it definitely can have an impact on culture. So you have to learn to adapt with that as you go. Hewitt was a very much a one firm firm mentality, meaning it didn't have profit centers, it didn't have it didn't have lost leaders in terms of product. It really was everybody helping each other. And one of the things that I really loved about Aon is the evolution of that from a private partnership at Hewitt and into a very large public entity at Aon. At Aon, we were all about the Aon United. And as Greg Case would put it, he was our CEO. He said everybody at Aon does we do one of two things. You're either helping a client or you're helping a colleague help a client. And that attitude and mentality was actually very consistent with my principles of what makes a great culture. And putting the team first instead of individual advancement just felt good to me. And that's the kind of thing that you could have a core of the principle that that started in a different way when I was young and with a private firm. And then later on in my career, I was actually able to contribute to the development of that culture of either helping clients or helping colleagues help clients in my own way as a leader. And frankly, in my leadership role, really lead with the principles of that culture and what I really embraced about it and made other people feel like, hey, it was about the the success we're having as a team in an organization and the fact that every single person has a role. We do it great. We work together and, and everything we're about is helping each other. That's a culture that I really valued and it carried me through 33 wonderful years with this organization. So two, two follow-up questions. One is your title at the end was U.S. Mm-hmm. Health Solution Practice Leader. You got you to mm-hmm. define that for us, right? And explain what fall all under that umbrella, what your responsibilities were. But then also, based on what you said, you mentioned that Aon was very client-centric, right? Uh, the output, the work has to be for a client or you're supporting somebody else for a client. So... Were there any other factors over those three decades where you would say this is this was really our secret sauce for success for scale? Sure. Well, first off, so yes, my role the last six years of my career was the U.S. Health Solutions Practice Leader at Aon, and Health Solutions was a sort of an umbrella term that enveloped everything we did in the health and benefits consulting space. So all of the consulting activities, the brokerage work our active health exchange, our retiree health exchange, voluntary benefits, executive benefits, essentially everything that was around employee benefits other than retirement services. That sort of defines what the scope was. And it was a U.S. role specifically. So I did oversee and support our colleagues up in Canada and the health practice up in Canada. My, my direct P&L responsibility, which you know, almost nearing about a billion dollars and 2,000 colleagues toward the end, that was entirely in the U.S. And then you asked the question about our secret sauce. One of the things I really appreciated about Aon was a willingness to take informed risk. So it wasn't just taking brash risk on anything that came along, but being willing to take a risk. If you came along with a well-informed plan and an idea of something, it was a very 
kind of as much of an entrepreneurial environment as a really large, complex bureaucratic organization can get. And, and we focused around trust. And if you have, if you've earned trust and you've built trust among others, and you can give trust back to people who have also shown that you can trust them, you put trust in each other. And there's a secret sauce there that's really important because it's almost like you've locked arms in. And that is what teamwork ultimately is about. If you can't trust your team, the, it's going to be, it's going to be an issue. So, so it, it, it builds a little sense of almost a, it's not, it's not so much a loyalty or an obligation. It's just that there's people who had depended upon me and people who I have depended upon and were interrelated and their success is my success and vice versa. That's having that. I do think that's a big part of the secret stuff. At the end, you mentioned you, the organization had almost 2000 employees that were essentially the organization. And I'm wondering how would you define your management style and maybe also how did that evolve over time? Sure. For clarity, the 2,000 people that was in the health, on the health team in the U.S., yeah, Aon is almost right. 50,000 employees worldwide. And I actually call it out because part of my role as a leader is not just to lead the 2,000 colleagues and the, and the portfolio of the business, but also how that interacts and relates to the other parts of the business. As I mentioned, Aon was big into the, the Aon United one firm firm mentality. And we worked quite a bit with the other parts of the organization, whether that was health colleagues that lived in different parts of the globe or other U.S. colleagues that served our clients, but in a different capacity, maybe in the retirement practice or the property and casualty business or the human capital practice. And so in that leadership role, I was interacting with and representing the 2,000 colleagues on our team and our relations with the other 48,000 colleagues across the globe. So my style is, there's no question, I was, I'm was i a servant leader. I'm a roll up your sleeves and tell me what I can do. When I've got someone on my team that is really strong, my I view my role as being to support them, advocate them, maybe get out of their way a little bit and let them, them run with it, be there to provide advice, break a tie if needed, if people would agree on things. But the most important thing was to find really strong leaders and surround the leadership team with those leaders and then enable those folks to do their thing. I really believe in the value of surrounding yourself by trusted, trusted circle of leaders that you can share things openly with. There's a lot of time you spend as you well know, on on the center stage, on a video call, literally on stage somewhere, on a microphone, in front of an email that's being read by thousands of people. But if you don't have those times where you've got a small circle of folks that you're able to really work through your issues with, it, it can be really lonely at the top. So I actually believe leadership style is to get a really strong leadership team that works with you and be a servant to the to that leadership team as well. I'm, I've never been a command and control kind of person. It's just not my style. I'm, I'm aware of my own shortcomings. And in fact, if anything, I actually lean on my shortcomings because my strengths are gonna, my strengths are gonna come out anyway in, in just our work interactions. And if I'm aware of the things that I'm maybe not as strong in, I put more focus there and I become more well-rounded as a leader, work to overcome those shortcomings. And I, I think in the end of my career, I actually, discovered that I had become really good at some of the things that were shortcomings early on in my career as a leader, mentoring and facilitating and urging people to try a different way of doing things. So often early on in my career, I felt like I, I knew how things should be done. My gosh, hey, this is the way you should organize this spreadsheet. <laughs> and I had to learn how to let go of that and encourage other people to come up with better ways than I would have come up with. And you know what? More often than not, when you're not the smartest person in the room, people come up with better ways than you come up with. That definitely has been a hallmark of my my leadership style and the outcomes we've driven over the last several years. And maybe before we dive into kind of like how you evolved and the topic of mentorship and whatnot, 
you you mentioned trust a few times now in our conversation and how important that was in building the right leadership team and scaling the company. I assume that one parameter to build trust is just time, right? Are there other elements where you would say like, hey, this is how I define trust and this is how I build trust with, with my teams. Any recommendations you can give to other leaders? It, it starts by follow through. If you say you're going to do something, you need to do it. And if you don't do it, you you need to come back around and explain why you weren't able to do it. Sometimes it's okay not to do some of those things if it's a matter of, of trade-offs or, or time involvement. But ultimately, if you tell someone that you're going to do something, you better follow through and do it. And I think that's really important. And it's not a matter of under-promise and over-deliver. Over People use that a lot in like a, a customer service mentality. Trust isn't about customer service. It's not about delivering on a exceeding a, a bar that's been set. It's about people feeling that you're genuine, that you're giving them an honest truth and that you'll have their back. And that's one thing that's been really important to me is I want, I've always wanted my team members to know that I've got their back because I certainly would want them to have my back when I've needed it over the years. I just, I just think it, it starts with being able to look someone in the eye and be very genuine and don't tell them something if you don't really believe it. Yeah. And to, to your point, vulnerability, right? Just being honest about the stuff that you know and you don't know, right? And sharing openly, certainly another way to yeah, build the trust among you know, the, uh, the leadership. Yeah, team. for sure. You know, the, another one I'd have to say is, is sort of a hot topic right now, but inclusivity. If you've got a, a group of eight mm-hmm. people in the room and you're only listening to two or three, you've lost trust with the other five or six in the room. And you really do need to be open and encourage others to, to participate. They ask them to be involved, ask their opinion, comment on the things that they've done and make it feel like an environment that's safe to open up and talk and contribute and suggest and that it's it, it, safe to make a suggestion without fear of ridicule or fear of being wrong or rejected or argued with. I just find that collaboration is so important to that dynamic and encouraging everybody to be a part of that is, is important to me. So you mentioned that like... At the end of your career, a lot of it was staying and mentoring and whatnot to your team. Mm -hmm. Let's maybe talk about the flip side in terms of who, how did you in your career use mentors, coaches? What kind of a role did they play in your career growth? Yeah, I've had so many coaches and mentors. There's a temptation to to name names. I'm not going to do it because I'd probably (laughs) offend some of the people who I'd forget to include. Those who stood out were all, it was always someone who was willing to confide in me, seek my help, even though I felt like they were more senior, certainly more experienced, more knowledgeable, but they would seek my help, ask my help and my opinion. And they would go back to trust. They'd put some trust in me. And I always noticed when a really good coach or mentor, they'd allow me to succeed or fail, not fall flat on my face. Mm -hmm. It's okay to fail. It's okay to allow someone to fail, especially if they're going to learn. I mean, you have to give them a soft landing pad, of course, but giving them room to stretch their, stretch themselves is really good. And I think you Trying to define someone's someone's role too tightly is like, here's the things that they do, oftentimes inhibits growth. And most of the good coaches and mentors I had over the years would actually seek me out to do something that wasn't part of my formal job description mm-hmm. and give me a chance to stretch my legs away in a way that maybe a, a direct growth path might not. And that, that resulted in 
me having a pretty wide array of career development opportunities along the way. I mean, it was really amazing to me how, how many different directions my career could have gone in, given the opportunity that I was given at earlier stages of my career. With these culture mentors, right, where maybe two, two questions there. One is, did you, how did you seek them out? Did that develop organically, right? Or did you have sort of blind spot where you said, hey, I want to develop in a certain way? And then the other follow up question would be, were these relationships typically more formal or informal in a structure? First off, it was definitely more organic. It wasn't like I saw someone and went out of my way to find them and said, I want you to be my mentor. Now, I certainly made myself available to people who were who I was attracted to from a standpoint of who they were and what they did and the things I could learn from them. So there's a little bit of growth in both directions, but it definitely was organic. And then the, the second part of your question, it was interesting. interestingly enough, it was definitely more informal Usually those coaches or mentors did come from a more formal leadership role in the organization, but it wasn't a, like I was nominated to be someone's, to be assigned to someone for mentoring purposes. It really was more I informal where I would develop a relationship with somebody who maybe it was more senior in the organization and I was able to learn from them. And in most cases, I actually became a, a they became friends. There are people who I, who I still am, some of my closest friends today are people who at one point were my mentors. I mean, I, ironically, at least three of them, I ended up being their manager later in their careers in, in, in my role. And we had a great time making fun about that fact as I was wrapping up my career. But there's other ways you can do it. There's outside coaches. I, at one point, I had a, I did have an executive coach when I first came into the national practice leader role. And I found that to be valuable. Some people get more out of it than others. For me, the hands-on experience was definitely better than having someone, a paid coach on the outside that help. We'll admit that I probably didn't get as much out of it as maybe I, I had hoped. It certainly was valuable, but the the things that stuck with me longer were definitely the ones that were developed on a more informal basis organically in, inside the organization. People who saw something in me and gave me a chance and really gave me some of their time that they otherwise might not have. And that meant a lot to me. And it made me really want to take and make full use of the time they were giving me and you know, maybe return it in future years by developing into that resource that they were hoping I could be. Yeah, it certainly resonates what you said about ideally if you can build relationship in business that are also that friendships, right? And you combine those two things, that's certainly the sweet spot. So if you think about your your career and your progression, mentors, coaches, that's one element, right? What else did you find beneficial as you think about self-improvement learning, right? Is this, were you part of certain peer groups or are there certain conferences out that you would say yeah. was really valuable for you from a self-improvement perspective? Sure. Maybe I'll start, but I'll put in a, a shameless plug for the actuarial profession. Mm -hmm. I came out of school and I was an actuary. I was a fellow of the Society of Actuaries, six years out of school and with a concentration in the health practice. For anyone who's ever thought about taking the actuarial exam track, it's going to be a little daunting and you're surrounded by some really, really brilliant intelligence. I, I couldn't say enough good things about it. And it was less about, for me, the the actual detailed calculations and more about the thought process, the problem-solving analytical mindset that you brought to any conversation. And there are some people who believe that, hey, if I go down the path of being an actuary, I'm going to be in a back room somewhere with spreadsheets and data and analytics, right. and that's going to be my career. And I, it couldn't be anything further from the truth. That actually opens up so many doors if you've got good communication skills and curiosity and an ability to step back and apply that 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 
thought process that that you gain through the actuarial training, it actually can it actually leads into so many different directions from a business leadership standpoint. Self improvement learning started really with my going through the actuarial exam process. And then working as an actuary for several years and then adapting the skills that I gained along the way into different kind of, of analytical engagement. So that was one thing that for me is, was really good. I, I'm all for a good balance of conferences and corporate training classes and things like that. In the end, I like hands-on learning. The things that I, the times in my career when I probably biggest inflection points for me were definitely where I got a chance to work on a project or an initiative to help create something that didn't exist in the organization previously. And if they looked for volunteers, I'd raise my hand. And that just all comes from the, just being curious about the things that are happening and in, in, around being aware that you're going to learn something from literally everybody you come in contact with. And this doesn't just apply to the work environment. Every single person you come in contact with, you can learn something from. If you're open to it, and if you keep your mind open and you look for the things that you can learn from them, it's pretty enriching. And I think that it comes back in ways you can't even anticipate in the future. So for me, I just think that approaching every conversation with there's somebody here who has something that, that I can learn from them is, uh, has been really helpful for me. So, Will, you mentioned few inflection points in your career where... You raise your hand, right? You saw an opportunity, you grabbed it. Are there certain examples of that you can share with your audience and then maybe also outline what were some of the key learnings, right? Did you take away from these experiences? Uh, sure. So at least the one that stands out the most for me was in the late 90s, Hewitt Associates. We tried to develop a, an e-business. This is back in the dot-com age before the bubble burst in the early 2000s. We developed a what was essentially a new, at that time, a form of uh, sort of an online health insurance exchange. And and I did take a very, it was a risk, a calculated risk, because we talked about before, informed risk or a reasonable risk to leave a, a nice role as a partner in this organization and go to a, was essentially a startup. And I had an opportunity to do, to be much more of lead developer of that business. So it was a 11, 12 of us who were partners that helped to create that. And it It failed in, in, by all measures, it didn't succeed. Part of that was the bubble bursting with the dot-com business. But I, I just learned so much there. And then the other partners in the organization welcomed me back in afterwards. And we, we knew we were taking a risk and trying to build something that could create tremendous value. And one, one of the, so when I came back in, it was actually, I had developed so many additional skills in terms of, of how to develop a business, how to learn on the fly and build something in, in the void of where there wasn't anything previously. And the other partners embraced us and brought us back into the organization. So it was, a, like I said, it, it was a reasonable risk that I took. And I got comfortable with the idea of taking risks in the career. I certainly was tethered. I had a tether on me. I wasn't, I wasn't free climbing without a belay, <laughs> for those of you who know anything, <laughs> anything about rock climbing. And so when you got that, I feel it's so worth it to take a chance and to put your all into something and see what can happen. And if you're genuine and you lean on in on those, on this, both the strengths and the weaknesses, think that you will find the experience however successful or however, to whatever extent it fails, in the long run, you're going to grow from it, you're going to gain from it, and then likely to end up in their spot because of it. Yeah, we, I think very similarly, like in, in our organization at ThrivePass, we constantly thinking about these educated risks, right? Where yep. I always say out of five of these ideas, we work out, that's great, right? That's yep. how you, that's how you differentiate. And you also have to be, 
fine uh, with the fact that some of these will not work out, right? But as, as long as you're taking the right learnings out of it, it's certainly a win for the, uh, for the organization. Yeah. In order to succeed, you have to be willing to fail. You have to be okay with, ex with experience and failure. Absolutely. I think that is you get to take certain risks. Are there certain things now that you reflect on your career where you would maybe say, hey, I would do certain things differently from today's perspective? There are. I'm not sure that I would call any of them out specifically. I do have this experience, Andreas, that every once in a while I look back at what I thought how I did things, the way I acted, and the things I said five years ago. And I'm always surprised at how little I knew back then. Mm -hmm. So I sort of call it my five-year rule. And that applied when I was 30 looking back at 25. It applied when I was 45 looking back at 40. And let me tell you, it definitely applies when I'm 55 looking back at 50. I cannot believe how little I knew five years ago. Now, I say that a little tongue-in-cheek, obviously, but look, there are always things that you would do differently. And the fact that I can sit there five years later and recognize some of those things, and I just, it just means I, I know I've grown and learned so much in those last five years. So I don't know that I can honestly say I would do things differently. And look, hindsight's twenty twenty. Everybody would sure. have something that they would do differently. But I don't know that I would stop and undo everything. I just appreciate the fact that I can look back and recognize how I did how something I did or said or thought wasn't as spot on as I thought it was. And I think by recognizing that, I, I learned, and it actually helps me in my decision-making today. Because I, can, I, I know right now, as smart as I think I might be, five years from now, I'm going to look back and realize I didn't know anywhere near as much as I thought I did. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting nugget, right? To realize yeah. the more somebody becomes an expert in the field, in any given field, the more you realize you don't know about that field and the more yeah. the more questions oftentimes come up. Yep. So tell us what, what's next in your career, right? You obviously spent, you have very, very successful Aeon. What is your current focus and what does the future hold for you? Yeah, I can tell you that right now I'm doing a great job of catching up on, on my outdoor time that I didn't experience over the last 33 nice. years. So I've enjoyed that. You know, what I'm doing right now, I am doing advisory work. I'm helping getting involved in boards, both corporate and, uh, and volunteer boards, finding others that and helping them reach their potential and being able to manage the amount of, of time, who I work with, the topics that I work on, how much time and, and energy I put into them. I, that's something that I can control now. And I've found that I've done a great job of re-energizing and almost like having a rebirth in the last year. I'm a young guy. I literally just turned 56 and I've got a little more runway left in me, but I'm really pleased with my decision to retire at an early age and do things on more of a part-time basis moving forward. I am certainly open to others that might need some advisory services based on my background and skill set. I'm happy to have a conversation with almost anybody who comes along. But for me, it's just having that balance and really maintaining that balance between the personal life, the things that I'd like to do in my active years here and being looking at my professional life and how I can give back to others in a way that people gave to me as I was developing through my career. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like the dream job, right? Where you still <laughs> are involved yeah. in a lot of, yeah, just interesting conversation, innovation, the industry itself, but less from a day-to-day -day operations perspective and then just having a little right. bit more breathing room for the family, personal matters. 
Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's a, I don't know if it's a dream job per se, but it certainly is one that I, I couldn't have done if I hadn't put in the hard work and the elbow grease mm-hmm. for the last 33 years. It's not like you can choose to do this when you're 30 years old. So I am, I'm humbled and appreciative that there's many people out there that want to have conversations with me and that think that I can add value to their situation. And I'm, as I said, I'm a very collaborative person. I want to help people succeed. And it feels good to me to be able to do that. That's where I that's where I get my energy from, get where I get my buzz from. And and I've got more energy now than I've probably have in the last twenty years. Yeah, and it, it shines, right? It comes through very clearly. <laughs> so thank you so much for taking time today. My um, pleasure. And I hope that I will be part of one of the future bourbon tastings. So this will be my shameless like for an invitation there. <laughs> you've got an open invitation anytime my friend well no thank you so much again for the conversation and enjoy the rest of your day thank you you too this podcast is sponsored by thrive pass a trusted hr partner for innovative benefits technology from lifestyle spending accounts to pre-tax to cobra administration thrive pass has you covered we personalize benefits you thrive as the employer of choice more at thrivepass.com.